<laughs> so in Mark chapter 12, in verse 28 is where we'll start tonight. And as we begin, I want you to first remember where we're at in the scriptures. Basically, Jesus is being inspected. He's uh, come into the town of Jerusalem, and he's come around the time of Passover. And at the time of Passover, the ritual, the what they would do is they would celebrate the feast of Passover, and it just brings them back to the remembrance of when they left Egypt, and they were actually told by the Lord that, um, remember all the plagues that God put on, uh, on the Pharaoh and on the Egyptians, and what he said was, um, I'm going to take the firstborn of every family that does not trust in me. And what I want to tell you is that if you're If you want to be delivered from this land, basically, you need to be delivered by faith. And so he said, what I want you to do is take a a lamb, a spotless lamb, and I want you to kill it. And I want you to take that lamb, and I want you to take the blood from that lamb and spread it over the doorpost of your home. And that blood will be a sign of God's covenant between you, and that will be your protection. That will be a sign that you trusted what the Lord said. And when the angel of death comes over the land of Egypt... He will not take your firstborn, but anybody that doesn't trust in the blood of the lamb over their home will be in danger of losing their firstborn. And so to us, that sounds very archaic and kind of nasty and dirty. And like, why would he have you kill an animal and spread the blood on the house? But that was in the Old Testament. What God had told the Israelites is that without the the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or no forgiveness of sin. And so... Because of what was going on in Egypt, God wanted to deliver his people out of there. He made this way that they could be all delivered, not just some of them. And at the same time that he could put a plague on those that didn't trust in the Lord, that were keeping the Israelites from leaving the land. And so in the same way, we have Jesus, our spotless lamb, that was provided as our Passover lamb to be our atonement, our covering. His blood was shed, not only so our sins could be covered, but removed, washed clean. Isaiah chapter 1 says, Come let us reason together. Though our sins were as scarlet, He's made us white as snow. And He's done that by the spotless blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus being our Passover Lamb is being inspected in Mark chapter 12 by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And and today we'll see the scribes. And these were just the religious leaders of the day that were inspecting Jesus to try and find fault in Him. Not so they could find out whether or not He was a good spotless Lamb, but because they wanted to prove to the world that he wasn't really the Messiah. They wanted to dispute with him. And what they found when they inspected him is that he ends up inspecting them rather than them inspecting him. So what we're going to find out today is that another group is going to come along and they're going to try and inspect Jesus, and it's the scribes. But imagine, if you will, thinking that you can inspect the sunlight. You know, the sun is extremely bright down here on earth, right? But if you were to get close to it, not only would you get close and you would be blinded by it, but you would also be melted because it's so hot. The same way when you think that you can inspect God, He is called in Scripture the light of the world. And imagine, if you will, if you walked up close to the brightest light in the whole world, maybe one of those vanities that has the bulb lights all the way around it. When you walk close to that, you may be walking up to inspect your face. But these guys are walking up to the light of the world to inspect him. But when you walk close to a light, what it does is it reveals all your flaws. Not necessarily the mirror, because the mirror is clear, but it, it reveals your flaws. And so they're walking up to Jesus thinking they're going to inspect him to see if he's spotless. 
And what they do is when you come in contact with a holy God, you find out how spot full you are, how many spots are on you, how defective you are, how much of a failure you are in comparison to a holy and a perfect God. So these guys are about to be completely blown off their rocker. They're going to find out that God is holy and they're not going to find any fault with Him. And then they're going to find out how unholy they are. Verse 28 says, Then one of the scribes, remember there was two groups that had asked questions. There was one. There was the, uh, the Pharisees. Uh, one of the groups asked whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes. And then the second group asked it, you know, about the resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, the third group is tonight, verse 28, the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked him, okay, you've answered well, which is the first commandment of all? So before you think, okay, well, let's look at Exodus chapter 20 and find out what the first commandment is, what he's meaning there is that what is the most important commandment of all? What should be the first priority of what we should follow? Because in that day, they had the Ten Commandments and they had the books of the law. But what they had done is they had taken the Ten Commandments and they had kind of expounded upon them, the Pharisees and those that were religious leaders. And they, they took those Ten Commandments that were so simple and they brought them to 613 of them. That's what we do as man. We, we like to overcomplicate things. God gives us something simple and we go, okay, you know, how can we make this easier? And we make it harder. Well, they made 613 commandments. And so they're saying, okay, well, of all the commandments, which one should we focus on first and foremost? Because there's a lot to deal with. And so his answer is, verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the most important commandment. So Jesus answers here, and he's quoting from their scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. These are the words that God had told Moses to teach the children of Israel after the Exodus, when they entered into the land that he had promised to give them. He told them this command right after they entered into the land. It would be a reminder to them to keep their hearts right as they would be tempted to follow after other gods and worship other things since they experienced a little prosperity and the abundance once they got into the land. I don't know about you guys, but it seems like I trust in the Lord a whole lot more when I'm not going through adversity. When everything's fine in my life, I don't really need the Lord. I'm like, hey, you know, you got me through that hard time, but now that there's nothing bad going on, I'll take it from here. You know, you, we can put it on cruise control. But he wanted them always to remember how they got to the place that they were in. That God was the one that delivered them from Egypt. That God was the one that brought them through the Jordan River miraculously. That God was the one that brought them through the Red Sea miraculously. Everyone always focuses on those miracles, but it still took faith to walk through. Imagine, if you will, you're standing at the, the edge of the Red Sea, and all of a sudden the wind picks up and, and the water just parts down the middle. Now, yes, it's pretty cool. But I don't know about you guys, but I don't think I would have been the first one to walk in. That's a lot of water. How long is it going to stay? You know, but the Lord told him, go ahead and walk through. All right. Well, I'm sure it wasn't just like a mile or two. And even if it was, how long does it take to walk two miles with however many people they had? They had a couple million people. So my point is, is that it took faith to go through there. And so God said, when you go into the land and I give you what I promised you, 
it's still going to take faith. You're going to have to trust me. You're not going to be able to trust in your own understanding. Because when they went into this land, what they were going to find out is that there were gardens, there were vineyards, there was prosperity, there were grapes the size of your head. I don't know if that's like literally the size they were, but they were huge is the point. And when they went into the land, there was also going to be giants. Remember 40 years before that, they didn't go in because they were afraid of the giants. They were like grasshoppers in the sight of the people that already lived there. See, God was sending them into a land that was overtaken in idol worship, pagan idolatry. They were worshiping gods that were false gods, foreign gods. And so when he sent them in there, he knew that they would be tempted to follow the other gods because they would see the prosperity the people were experiencing. But he wanted them to know, you're supposed to be different. You're not going to be like all the other people. I want you to trust me. And what he said there, the commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He wanted them always to remember that. So in Deuteronomy, here's what it says. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, turn, turn there. Deuteronomy is in the very beginning of the Bible. You go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jessica's waiting for me to mess up because I've messed it up so many times. But in, in Deuteronomy... What you have is really God just re-emphasizing through the pen of Moses what he had already told them in the law in the book of Leviticus, which is the book of the law, the covenant. And it basically tells them how many sacrifices they've got to make for everything and what pieces they're supposed to burn and what pieces they're supposed to eat and all these things. But the whole point is in Deuteronomy, he reminds them what he taught them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord our God excuse me, the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. He's promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. And then here it is, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So my point is, is that they said, okay, well, what's the greatest commandment? And he's saying, the one I told you way back when the nation started. It hasn't changed. God doesn't change his pattern. He gives us his law to live by, and he says, this is how you shall live. It's not just about getting your ticket punched to go to heaven. It's about how to live while you're still here. And so God instructs them, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That means that he's the only God. You shall worship no other God. And realize that when Jesus tells them this is the first commandment, this sums up the first four of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And these words which I command you, you shall today be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They should, God's word should be before your face all the time. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. The point is, whether you're working out in the field, whether you're in your house talking with your family, whether you're at work, whatever you're doing, God's word should be in the forefront of your mind. You don't have to literally tie it to your head as some of them did. The point is to always have it before your eyes because it will be your guide. 
There's a psalm that says, Your word, Lord, is a lamp unto me at my feet, a light unto my path. It's going to guide my steps. In other words, the, the number one thing that we are to do is to remember that the Lord is our God. He alone is our God. In other words, He is the only one. He is, he is who should come first in all our priorities. He should be the first thing on our minds when we rise up, when we sit in our houses, when we go throughout our day. He saved us so that we could live an abundant life. So what is his purpose for us still being here? That's one of the reasons that we have his word. It's going to guide us through those kinds of questions. But the Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees, these political, these uh, religious leaders of the time, they had forgotten about this. What they did was they took God's commandments and they said, you know what? In these commandments, we have the power to yield power over other people. We can be their leaders. We can have prominence. We can have uh, money. They can pay us money and we can, we can be above them. We can use it so they can worship us. They didn't say that, but in action, that's basically what they ended up doing. They took the commandments of God and they made them all about how they could show everyone else how great that they were. Not to show them how ungreat they were and how holy God was, but to show everyone how great they were. So they took those commandments and they used them to make, basically make themselves gods, to show everyone, hey, look how holy we are. And this, this is why they didn't see Jesus and recognize that he was sent by God, that he was the Messiah that their, their, their uh, scriptures told them about. They were focused on their own greatness and he stepped into their lives and was taking the spotlight off of them. He was actually threatening their stature, their being important. Because if God is more important than anything else, that means that people become less important. But notice that the first and most important commandment was to put God first in all things. And then in verse 31 it says, And the second, like it, is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, the first command Jesus mentions summarizes the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments concerning their relationship with God. And when your relationship with God is right, then he makes all of our relationships with other people right. The second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, is the essence of commandments 5 through 10. So Jesus took it and he simplified it, while the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they took the Ten Commandments and they made them 613. Jesus says, I'm going to make them two. I'm going to simplify it for you. And we need that, right? We don't need it to be overcomplicated. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Make it easy for me. And he does, if we'll ask him. And so he states it here. And they did ask him. You know, we kind of dog on the scribes and the Pharisees, but they had good questions. Just their reason for asking the questions was kind of mis misguided. But he says there, love your neighbor as yourself. We love ourselves unconditionally, don't we? We give ourselves tons of grace. We give ourselves second, third, 85 chances. And we should, right? We give ourselves grace, but we don't afford that same kind of love to the people that we're trying to take care of, love, minister to. What we expect from them is perfection every time and the first time every time. The problem with that is that we don't expect that out of ourselves, so why could we expect that out of anyone else? So for ourselves, we want people to give us grace. For others, we oftentimes have no grace. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he said, there is no other commandment that is greater than these two commandments. These are the most important. 
You see, the religious leaders of that day had taken it and overcomplicated it. But it's as simple as this. May we literally come to have a heart that's like this. To take God's word, to put it in the frontlets of our eyes, to make it the most important, to read it and to know it. That's number one. Number two, to trust it and to do it. Oftentimes, there's lots of people that know God's word but don't do anything about it. They take it, they read it, they suck it in, but they don't ever use what it has to offer. And then number three, when we're doing that, there's peace because when we trust God, we read his word, we know it, and then we do it, what happens is that then the results are up to him. Then the result of what our faith is supposed to do the results are up to him. And number four, once we've done it, we'll be emboldened to be able to share that with others. I've heard people so many times say, I don't, I don't know how to share about Jesus and my relationship with him with other people. And oftentimes I have to say, it's because you haven't done it, you haven't trusted in him yourself. I've heard oftentimes that the church really, or Christians, people that are inviting people to church, you're not really anything other than a beggar that's inviting someone else to find bread where you found bread. You were hungry, you were thirsty, and God provided bread and water for you. And you're just inviting another person that was in the same spot you were, someone that was hungry, someone that was destitute. You're saying, hey, I found sustenance in the Lord my God, in Jesus Christ. Come with me and see. Come get fed. Come get filled up. And when we do that, we bring glory to God because we show everyone, hey, I am who I am, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. And then we don't become like the scribes and the Pharisees. We don't get holier than thou. We get humbler than thou. We get to this spot where we go, I'm nothing without Jesus. And so, verse 32, So the scribe, who had asked the question in the first place, the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all of the whole burnt offerings and the sacrifices that one could give. Verse 34, Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You, my friend, are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared to question Jesus. So Jesus' answer is approved by the scribe. Now this is the God that, that the scribe, he's like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, you did good. And they're like patting Jesus on the back, like, good job. Well, of course he did a good job. He's the son of God. And we know that, but the scribe didn't know that. And so, you know, he responded by saying that because he was like, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's not crazy. But the problem is that the scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they saw Jesus, the main thing they had with him is they saw him as he was a blasphemer. He was claiming to be God. And if anybody came in the door today and said, hey, I'm God, we would do the same thing. And so they're sitting there going, what in the world? We need to question this. We need to find out if he's, because I didn't know that he, you know, we knew that the Messiah would come, but we didn't think he was actually going to, the Messiah would be God himself. And so they're questioning him. They're, they're inspecting him. So he was, what Jesus says about this man is, he says, you are, very, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And that's true. The kingdom of God had come. He was encapsulated in the man Christ Jesus. Not only was he not far from him in his knowledge, but he also wasn't far from him. He was standing right next to him. The kingdom of God had come, the ambassador, the one who would redeem mankind. 
But here's the deal. Oftentimes, we, come, we become like the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees. We're, we're so close to the kingdom of God. There are people that darken the doors of churches every week. They show up. They sing songs in church. They understand the truths of Scripture. They read them. They get them. But the problem is, is that they, while they know the Scriptures, they don't know the God of the Scriptures. They don't know the person behind them that desires so earnestly to have a relationship with them. So... They have it all outwardly fixed up, but they don't have it inwardly. They don't have a relationship. So now these men are finished inspecting and questioning Jesus. And as verse 34 so plainly puts it, after that, no one dared ask Jesus a question. Jesus begins to inspect these men who are so adamantly trying to reveal faults in him. So verse 35, then Jesus answered and he said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes from Psalm chapter one, chapter 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 37, Therefore David himself calls him Lord, meaning calls the Messiah Lord. How is the Messiah then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So Jesus asks this group gathered there, And what I want to point out is that they were in the temple, but they weren't in the spot that only the priests could get to. They were out in the portico where many could hear what he was saying. So there was a large group gathered and they were listening. Now in this group, you had the common people, you had the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. So Jesus is asking this question to the scribes because he knew that they understood that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. He recognized that they knew and they believed that this Psalm 110 was about the one who would come and redeem Israel. So knowing that, he said, okay, so if David was talking about the Messiah here, why does he refer to the Messiah as his Lord, though he's his descendant? Because they knew that he would be from the lineage or the descendants of King David. So King David refers to his, basically his really distant son as his Lord. He says, why does he, re- why does he refer to him as Lord? And of course, they don't answer. As oftentimes happens, they don't know how to answer. Now, to us, it's obvious. Well, he refers to him as Lord because he's Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's fully man and he's fully God at the same time. So that's obvious. But they're not going to answer that because they're convinced that he's not the Messiah. They're already convinced of that. So they don't even give him a chance to ask this question, because if they'd answered it honestly, they'd go, well, the only answer can be that the Messiah would be God himself. So, because of that, they don't answer that way. They all claim to know the scriptures, and yet they completely miss their Messiah. So the answer for us, excuse me, I skipped ahead. But the scribes and those who were listening were completely silenced by this question. Jesus asked them a very searching question, and they didn't answer because they knew that the only one answer is he had to be the Son of God. So, though that fact was found in their scriptures that they claimed to believe at this point and was undeniable, the reality about the scribes, the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders of that day was not that they didn't know better, it was that they had left the love of God. 
as being the most important, they began to love themselves, and in doing so, they took the glory that belonged to God and gave that glory to themselves, and the result of that can be seen in the way that they behaved in public. Let me tell you that you will become like whatever you worship. It's a known fact. If you worship a God who is angry and wrathful, you will become angry and wrathful. You won't have any grace. If you worship Jesus and you experience His grace, you're going to be graceful like He is. You're going to recognize that you want to be like your Father who is in heaven. If you worship yourself, you'll become more and more like yourself. And the problem with that is that we are sinful and we're selfish. That's why Jesus said, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Because He knew that of all people, we love ourselves the best, right? We're good at that. So, these Pharisees, these scribes, they had left loving God and they decided, you know what? I'm going to love me. I'm going to have a little me time. And uh, the result of that can be seen in the way that they live their lives. So, verse 38, Jesus starts to inspect them and point out what He sees about them. And oftentimes, we go to church and we kind of think, you know, what, what can I learn about Jesus? And oftentimes, when we learn about Jesus, what we learn about really is us. Wow, Jesus is holy and I'm not. So Jesus said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes. Now remember, the scribes are in this crowd, and he's talking to these common people, so he's saying it right before them. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. Love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation, is what he said. So the scribes of Jesus' day were teachers of the law. This was their occupation. It was what they got their livelihood from. And often they were dependent on people's gifts for their support. Some, however, overstepped the bounds of humility, piety, and dignity by flaunting their position of respect and trust. To have someone that's a leader in the church, there's a, there's a certain amount of trust that they should command, a certain amount of respect. But the reality is that they would use that as a, a means to get gain. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. But he also wrote to Titus, he said, They, they have a, a, a form of religion, but they deny the power thereof. And in Timothy, again, he, he said that they, they, they think that they can use their godliness or their righteousness or their position in the church as a means to gain money, to gain prominence. And he had a, a great indictment against people that would use their position in the church to lord it over people and to gain you know, the best seat in the house, as it were, to be seen by men. Because if we're, all, any of us are living our religious life following Jesus, trying to be seen by men, we're missing the point. He's going to point that out here. But they would use it, their position, to get benefits, and that was their only reason for continuing to serve. Not because they love the Lord and want to serve His people, but because of what they could get, what they could gain from their position. Jesus said to them, Beware of these kinds of people who desire to be seen by men. And He warned the common people while the scribes were sitting there and listening, This is a strong judgment against them because they heard Him. They heard the very Son of God explain, this is where your faults are. And they didn't change. Jesus always has the final judgment on those who use His name and work as a means to get something for themselves, and He will have the final word. They're ultimately going to be brought to justice by He. He's the judge. He's both the justifier and the judge. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. 
is a parallel passage where Jesus is uh, getting a little bit more specific. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Listen, or take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. He says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may have glory from men. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They've been seen, right? But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. See, the idea is that we're not supposed to be building up treasures and saving them for here. You know, when somebody gives us a pat on the back, it's, we're getting robbed, you know. And not that we're supposed to avoid being seen at all. Some of the things that we do for the Lord, you know, they, they're going to be seen. That's how God gets glory. In one of the chapters in Mark, it says, uh, let your light so shine before men that, you're, that, that all will see and give glory to your Father and who is in heaven. People are going to see what you do for the Lord. But the reality is, is if you're doing it so that you'll be seen, That's the problem. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. So to close tonight, Jesus in his final appearance here in the temple in Jerusalem, he witnesses and he gives testimony of those who are true worshipers. This is a contrast, right? We've just looked at the scribes where he's given specific reasons why they're they're in the wrong and they need to beware of these people. They're out to to steal from you, to rob. They're, They're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And you can. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And God will still be able to get glory from that. But oftentimes, more than not, He gets robbed of the glory. Uh, How many times have you heard of somebody saying, Hey, I'm not going to church because I got burned way back in 67 because so-and-so robbed me blind and then they closed the church and I gave all my money to them. And who can blame that person? They've been completely burned. And no one would want to go back to the Lord if that's the representation that they had seen from one of God's servants. But God is not that way. They misrepresented the Lord. That's, let no man keep you from the man. But the reality is many people are stuck in a spot where they can't trust anymore because they've been burned by somebody that was completely robbing them blind. But Jesus shows here an example of a true worshiper. And he testifies to what that looks like in contrast to those who have the wrong motives. Verse 41 says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put money into the treasury. Notice that. He saw how the people put money into the treasury. didn't say he noticed how much he put in. said he noticed how they put it in. That's important. That's a key verse there. And many who were rich put in much. Verse 42 says, Then one poor widow came. She threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. Now, quadrants is pretty much the equivalent of a few cents. So it's not much at all. But notice here, verse 43. So he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So notice that Jesus noticed, number one, He notices first how they put the money in the treasury or the agape box or whatever you want to call it, the offering plate, whatever they use. He noticed how they did it, 
but he also noticed how much they didn't give. <laughs> Notice that the, the rich people had given tons of money, but they really didn't give till it hurt. And the one woman that didn't have anything to give anyway, what she gave was all that she had. Well, the point is not how much to give, but it's how we give. And I absolutely love what Jesus is looking at here. He's looking at how they gave. How the people put money into the treasury. You could insert anything. Worship isn't just financially. It's not just what we give. Oftentimes what we give is a sacrifice of praise. That's what Hebrews calls it. And that sacrifice of praise is just our words. It's the first fruits of our lips. It's the words that we sing to the glory of His name. Maybe it's just singing a worship song at church or in the car. That's a sacrifice. We're singing that He is good and we're not. It's a sacrifice. Maybe it's the, what you talk about. That's our worship. Maybe it's how you live your life. The point is not exactly what you do. It's how you do it. And these Pharisees and scribes did all those things to, so that they could be seen by men. And God, and Jesus Christ, showed that the widow, she didn't care what people saw that she was giving. Many people probably thought she was only giving, like she was holding back. Oh, sure, a couple cents. Great job. But what she was doing is she was taking the one thing she had to give. She gave it. And she gave it, and she was blessed because she got to worship in that way. And she trusted that God would give her what she needed. So the, the principle here is that the Lord never separates the offering or the worship from the heart of the worshiper. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they were worshiping outwardly. They were praying in public. They were giving alms. They were wearing these big robes to show how holy they were. This widow, this woman, she just gave a few cents. She didn't make a big trumpet blast about it. She didn't tell all her friends. She just gave what she had. It's between her and the Lord. And Jesus was blessed because of it. Do you know that when we sing to the Lord that He's blessed? He loves to hear from His children. If you've ever had children or young ones around you and they're, they're just singing songs, it just blesses you to know that they're happy. And the Lord... He sees when we worship Him, and He sees our motives more than just the way that we worship. And His desires that our hearts would be wholeheartedly surrendered to Him, no matter what that looks like. For some, it could mean that you know they they uh, they give all they have, and for some, it's like God knows I got a bunch of bills to pay, and He knows when we have when we've given all that we can give. But the point is, is that God sees our hearts, and He sees. How true they are. He deceives. And the problem is, is we think we know our hearts, but our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Only God can know our motives. Let me ask you, just let the Lord search your motives for why you do what you do. You know, I, I went to church for years um, for the wrong reasons. I felt, you know, when I was real, real young, I remember I'd go every week because I wanted to pray for a girlfriend, you know. And, and I think God hears those prayers and He sifts through them. He knows what we need and what we don't need. But, I wasn't there because I wanted to worship God. I wanted to worship me, and I wanted Him to help me worship me. And God doesn't ever want to help us worship our idols. What He wants to do is He wants to give us peace and hope. And when He does that, it may not look like what we would ask for, but when we worship Him, it, it fulfills the one thing we were created to do. So I ask you, let Him, let him reveal your motives today. And if you've been worshiping Him to be seen, that's okay. If he's revealing that to you, let him, ask him to change that. Lord, I, I know that I should be at church, but change my motives. I was wrong. It happens. 
And if you've been worshiping because of the love he has shown and he's been blessing you, well, then just keep going. He's pleased. He hears. One of the most beautiful things I was reminded of this week was that when, God, when you pray to God, it's not just like a ritual. He hears. And he answers. And he may not answer the way you want him to, but he hears. And it's so comforting when he answers. And you're just like, wow, Lord, you even gave me the faith to pray that prayer. He sees how you offer, and He will reward you in heaven open, openly. So uh, take heart in that. But Father, um, I just thank You.